Please be seated. You'll find the insert for this morning's message in the bulletin or on our website if you're joining us online. Uh, last week we completed uh, the epistle to the Ephesians. And my plan in the new year is to study through both Psalm 119 and the book of James, but it seemed fitting that we would pause in between these books. And I'd like to take the next two, maybe three weeks to consider the Messiah in the Old Testament. When you think of, of understanding the incarnation, understanding the birth of Christ, the Bible draws little attention to what so much of our culture draws much attention to. Only one of the gospel stories tells us the baby in the manger. That is true. It's important. That is almost entirely where our cameras and our, and our images go to. And that is an amazing truth but I think biblically, it's the messianic expectation that is giving the impact and the significance of this birth. This child has been promised. He's been promised. He's, we're told in the Old Testament again and again and again, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And so to really understand the significance, why are the angels rejoicing? Why are the shepherds celebrating? Why are the wise men coming from afar? It's not because of how cute and very cute the baby in the manger is. But it's because God has finally kept his promise. He has finally done what he said he would do. And so my desire over the next two or three weeks is to begin following that thread of God's promise. That we might have that same expectation. That we might have that same joy at the incarnation. Now what we're going to be doing is a biblical theological study. And what I mean by that is this. We're going to start, you can open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start the very first mention of God's promise. And we are going to build, as we move forward through the Bible, we're just going to get through Genesis 22 this morning. But I think it's rich, there's plenty to see. As we look at, come thou long expected Jesus, part 1, the promised seed. Promised seed. Now, while you turn to Genesis 3, I need to make one other um, caveat. The ESV, the Bible that I teach from, does not translate the Hebrew seed, rather, translates it, um, I believe, your offspring. And that is a legitimate and fine gloss for the Hebrew word. However, I think the word seed, because that's the term we're going to be tracking, is superior. And the main reason for that is the word, the English word seed, shares a commonality with the Hebrew it's representing. And that is, it is a noun that is both representative of plurals and singulars. So you can speak of having 10 pounds of seed. It's a lot of seed, but you don't say seeds, you say seed. Or you can have in your hand one seed, right? So it's a noun that can be both used for singular and plural. That's important as God's promises to the woman about her seed Abraham about his seed will be used both in a broad plural sense and singular. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Galatians makes a point of that. So even though our ESV keeps talking about offspring, um, it's, it's translation. I think the New American Standard uses seed, but that's what I'm going with. So understand when you see offspring, and I'm talking about seed, it's, it's the same, same thing being translated. Okay? And so in Genesis 3... We get the fall. And the opening books of the Bible frames our worldview. We know who made us. God made us. We know why God made us. We know he made us to be in fellowship with him, to subdue the earth, 
be fruitful and multiply, to rule it. And we know what went wrong. What went wrong was the serpent tempted the woman, and she then led her husband into sin. And the entire creation order is put on its head. God was supposed to be the head and the ruler of the man who was to lead his wife. Together they were to subdue and rule the creation. And what you get in Genesis 3 is the creation coming and leading the woman who then leads her husband. It was a complete failure of the order and the breakdown. And God had promised that if they ate of the fruit, they would die in that day. And yet, while in a true sense they did experience spiritual death, they are not put to death. And what we see in Genesis 3 is part of the heart of our God. He is just, but he is also merciful. And in the curse to the serpent, we see what many have called the first gospel, or the proto-euangelion. I'd like to read that and consider a few points from it. Genesis 3.15, actually start in verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring or your seed and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay? And so here, precisely, we're going to see both that singular and plural emphasis on the promise of seed. What's wrong? Man has rebelled against God. Man has invoked a cosmic death penalty, committing treason. What does God do? He makes promises. He does not put them to death. And in this promise, this judgment against the serpent, we see um, hostility predicted. Three levels of hostility, actually. You're blank here. The promise of an enduring hostility. The promise of an enduring hostility. Because this has happened, the Lord has appointed, literally, I will put enmity between you and the woman. There's actually three levels of enmity. There's the first, between the serpent and Eve themselves. Second, there's the enmity between their offspring, their progeny. And then, we're going to see, there's the the, uh, conflict between a very particular offspring. So the promise of an enduring hostility, and in one sense, this hostility, this prediction, this promise, frames all of human history. And what we learn is that ultimately, there are only two races in humanity. If you want to frame humanity, there are ultimately only two races. There's the seed of the woman, there's the seed of the serpent. Keep your finger here, but turn to John 8. You'll, You'll see Jesus use exactly these categories in John 8. John 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, You're offspring of Abraham. I've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The sun remains forever. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. 
So Jesus can recognize, in one sense, their physical descendants of Abraham. In another sense, they're evidencing they have a different dad. They're of a different tribe. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the work of your father did. They said to him, we're not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. So Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So Jesus also deals with humanity in two categories. There are those who are of God, who hear him, who hear the truth, who love the truth. And there are those who are of the devil. They hate the truth. And in that sense, you can frame all of human history. There's a conflict promised between these two races. There's these two races. We were all formerly of that other race, if you remember. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. We were sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath. We were following the course of this world and the God of this world. That's who we formerly were. Until we came to Christ. So the prophecy, the, the promise first sets up the stage. There's, there's two seeds, there's two posterities, there's two descendants, and they will be in perpetual conflict. These two are in perpetual conflict. And in this sense, we're using the word seed broadly. All of your offspring. Um, these two are in perpetual conflict. You don't have to go very far to see the conflict happen. Um, the very next chapter of Genesis, Eve gives birth to a son, names him Cain. I have received or conceived a man, the Lord. And she may have hoped that he would go out and, you know, if you're reading this text for the first time, you might envision that Eve's going to give birth to descendants who are going to be habitually fighting serpents and there's going to be this clash. But oh no, in a very real sense, Cain proves to be a seed of the serpent. He murders his brother. The conflict predicted here takes place in the first generation within the same family. We know this. First John, um, verse chapter three, verse twelve makes this clear. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. When Jesus tells the Jews in John eight, your, your father's a murderer from the beginning. He's referring to this, and so. Even as the, the physical descent of the woman is important, and the Gospels make it clear Jesus physically descends from her, these two races, these two humanities transcend are more than that. For in a very real sense, Cain proves to be the seed of the serpent. This is not a prediction of men fighting serpents, but rather men fighting men. 
conflict within humanity. There are two are in perpetual conflict. Then the promise shifts from the broad to the singular. And again, this is why I think the, the use of the word seed is so helpful and, and why the text in Hebrew makes that same use both ways possible. Because it becomes clear that even as God is speaking of descendants, he says, um, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. All of a sudden, offspring becomes a he, becomes singular. He will bruise your head. I mean, he, he shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. And so what we get now is a unique descendant, the promise of a unique descendant. So this prediction, this first gospel, sets the stage, frames human conflict. There are the sons, the descendants of the serpent, the devil, the descendants of the woman. They're, they're constantly in conflict. We see that borne out in the very next chapter of the Bible. And yet, within that pool of the woman's descendants will come a unique dis- descendant, a unique descendant. And this unique descendant, there's a suggestion even here of an unusual conception. Um, Now, I don't want to suggest you can get the virgin birth from this text, but similar to the doctrine of the Trinity, and we think about Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the doctrine of the Trinity, you cannot get from, let us create man in our own image, the Trinity. But having learned that God exists in threeness and oneness, and you come back and you reread Genesis 1 and 2, and you see, let us make man in our own image, you go, aha, you see it, right? It's hinting at that. It fits. Well, in the same sense, and again, this is where seed is helpful. The, the woman certainly has descendants, but women don't have seed. It's an odd expression, the seed of the woman. And it suggests, no more than suggests, but it does suggest a strange or unusual conception. And when we see more of that as the story moves forward, I think it confirms this initial observation. The suggestion of an unusual conception. Um, the woman understood this promise of a unique person. Even in naming her son Cain, it suggests that she hoped he even might be that deliverer. I mean, again, our first parents didn't realize this would play out over thousands of generations. God makes a promise. She gives birth to her firstborn son. There, there, there appears to be a hope that this, this is the seed. No, he, he is the serpent seed. He is a murderer, not a deliverer. Suggestion of unusual conception. And we realize that this coming seed, this he, will deal a killing blow to the serpent. He will deal a killing blow to the serpent. We don't know how. We're not told that yet here. There'll be two bruisings. In this strife, two, the two combatants will inflict wounds on the other. One, a death blow. When you get hit in the head, crushed in the head, it's a death blow. Getting wounded in the heel, while painful, is not a death blow. Also notice, here this conflict is not between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. The conflict is between the woman's seed and the serpent. We're told that the two seeds, the two progenies, will be at conflict with each other. But when it gets to the singular, the special, the unique descendant, we're told, he shall bruise your head, the serpent's head, and you shall bruise his heel. The New Testament makes it clear 
the Lord Jesus Christ did exactly this. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So Jesus comes to destroy the devil. He will ultimately do that on the cross. On the cross as well, your next point, he will be wounded by the serpent. All of this predicted in Genesis 3.15. It's not entirely clear how it's going to play out. But to summarize, what we get from this first promise is this. There will be continual and ongoing conflict between two races of humanity. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That becomes clear in the very next generation. What also becomes clear is a unique descendant will eventually come. A unique seed. Who will defeat and deal a death blow to the serpent while being wounded by him? Now, it's not entirely clear how that's going to work out. It certainly isn't clear to them how long that's going to take. But think about it. In the very first instance, when what we'd expect is death and judgment, God comes and makes a promise, and his promise to solve the problem is to send a seed. How is God going to deal with the disorder and the rebellion in his creation? How is he going to deal with the sin of the man and the woman? How, how will he not utterly destroy them? He will send a seed who will defeat the serpent, even being wounded by him in the process. And so, at the very beginning of the story, in Genesis 3, we know that ultimately God's solution to the problem of man and sin and suffering and death will be solved by God. And we look to a coming seed, a coming descendant, a coming seed of the woman who will defeat the serpent. That's what we get in the first step. All that just in Genesis 3, 15. And the reason why I'm highlighting again this notion of seed is if that much expectation is raised, think about picking that thread back up. Because Moses wrote Genesis as one book, one scroll, turn with me to Genesis 12, where this thread and theme of seed gets picked up with Abraham. So we're left hanging in Genesis 3. Maybe the reader for the first time might also think, maybe Cain is the one. Oh no, no, not Cain, not him. You think of the chagrin, the dismay, the horror of the parents. And yet Adam believes God's promise he in the day they should have died, he names his mother, his wife, living. And the Lord gives them Seth, and the line proceeds. And then, as always happens in salvation history, God takes the initiative. He comes to Abram. He eventually be named Abraham, which is why I titled it Abraham. But at this point, it's just Abram. And in contrast in chapter 11 to the men who want to make a name for themselves by being a, building a tower, by bringing honor and glory to themselves, here God again shows his character. He comes and promises to make a name for Abram. Re- read with me. Um, read with me. Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 
And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go into the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land at the place of Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites from the land, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So here's the next picking up of this notion of seed. Now, in the prior chapters, we've been tracking descent. We've got genealogies. We get to know. We get to his sons. We get their genealogies. But here's the next big point of God adding his promises, God adding more information. The seed of Abram. And God actually promises Abram here eight things. I'll list them to you. He promises that he would make him a great nation. He promises that he would bless him. He promises that he would make his name great. He promises Abraham and his seed that they'd be a blessing to others. That God would bless those who bless him. That God would curse those who curse him. That through Abraham and his seed, God would channel blessings to all the nations. And that God would give to Abraham's seed the land. And what's the point? God shows up to Abram, and without Abram initiating anything, without Abram doing anything to invite this God because of who he is, and because he made a promise back in Genesis 3, takes the next step in advancing his program, and he promises that universal blessing will come through Abram and his seed. Universal blessing. He's going to bless Abram, he's going to bless the peoples, but ultimately, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And again, this gets connected to seed the progeny, the offspring. And so if we're reading through Genesis, and we know this promise came in Genesis 3, we, we perk up here, more things are coming. This offspring will defeat the serpent, but also to Abram's offspring, land, blessing, greatness, name is given. Okay? Go to chapter 15. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, no seed. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heavens and number the stars. If we're able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now there's clearly the broad, plural sense of offspring, right? You're going to have many, 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 many seed. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, this is the passage the Apostle Paul hits upon in, in, in Romans chapter 4. To demonstrate justification by faith that this happened before circumcision. But I think it's interesting to note that even though absolutely Abraham believes God and it's credit to him as faith, what's he believe God about? About a promise related to his coming seed. About God's promise tied to his descendants. Abraham is justified. When he believes in God's promise concerning his seed. Keep reading. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land that you possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, 
Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against each other. He did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they'll be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation whom they serve. And afterwards they shall come out with a great possessions. You see the promise of, of conflict made in Genesis 3, continues here. Abraham's seed will possess a land, but they'll have enemies, they'll be oppressed. That conflict continues. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces on that day. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So God promises in the first instance he's going to make him Multiply him. And Abraham, apparently, at least in the first instance, doesn't realize God's promise to give him a physical descendant because he looks to Eliezer of Damascus and God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you descendants from your own loins, from your body. And then he enters into a covenant with him. Notice God's the one making the covenant. This is what we call a unilateral covenant. Abraham promises nothing. It's a symbolism of why only God, symbolized by the torch, passes through the cut-up animals. Abraham, or Abram, is asleep. A covenant is made with him by the Lord God. And it's all centered around his seed, this land, blessing. And so if we're attending to this theme in, in the Genesis, again, this is a significant stop. God adds a covenant to it. Not that God needs to make promises for his word to stand. Whatever he says is true, but to give Abraham confidence. And remember, Abraham doesn't have a Bible. He's learning as he goes who this God is. This is a promise-making God. This is a covenantal God. And this is a God who initiates grace, who initiates salvation. And so in our next step here, Abraham believes God, has counted him as righteousness, and God tells him that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars. They will be afflicted by their enemies, but they will be triumphant. Now go to Genesis 17. We're heading somewhere. We are. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, so that I may make my covenant between me and you. And may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, 
I'll make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I'll give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant that you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He was Eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout their generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money for any foreigner who is not of your offspring. But he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her and I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? So Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child. Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So, a lot here. I just want to make three observations. First, We know circumcision is given as a sign of God's covenant. Now here, Abraham does have responsibility, but I want you to notice this covenant is only made after and upon God's unconditional covenant back in chapter 15. And as you notice the track of the theme of seed, circumcision as a sign in this location corresponds pretty well with that. You get, again, drawing attention, we're on the right track. This is... Seed, posterity, is an important theme in these texts and in God's promises. Abraham is given a sign. Um, But I also want you to notice here that God's promise, as much as it's broad, many nations, many kings, many peoples, there's a narrowness to it, right? God's promise is tied to a very particular seed. Where do we see that? Well, Abraham and his wife, on their own, came up with a plan to get... Abram, a descendant, through his handmaiden, Hagar, and the name of that descendant is Ishmael. And in one very real sense, Ishmael is the seed of Abraham. He's his son. And God says, no, 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 no. My promise is my covenant is a very particular line. He's got a very particular child in mind. And so we see, even as Abraham is the father of many nations, the Ishmaelites being one of them, there's also a narrow focus of descent, Again, why seed is such a helpful term in its plurality and its individuality. God's promise is tied to a very particular seed, in this case to Isaac. And notice now, a miraculous conception is promised. Abraham knows women this old don't give birth. 
Don't get pregnant. It's this miracle we're talking about. So it's hinted at in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman. We're now getting a miraculous birth. And, and we know the answer is not this, but perhaps even Abraham, if he'd heard some of the we don't know how much of the oral reports he knew about what was taking place, what had taken place in um, the garden. But perhaps he's even thinking, wondering, could this promised child of our supernatural birth, could, could Isaac be the Messiah? Maybe those thoughts are running around in his mind. Now, we know that's not the case. But things are starting to line up. A very particular seed, a very strange and unusual, miraculous conception. And then God takes the story and moves it a step even further yet in chapter 22. A child is born indeed as God promised. Nothing is impossible with him. Abraham is given this son. And then, God requires something unthinkable of him. And maybe Genesis chapter 22 has struck you as odd, strange. And it is in one sense. But as it sets up the story to come, and as it reveals information about God's promised coming seed... I think it's significant and remarkable. Let's, let's read it. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. It's just Horrific. Abraham doesn't have the rest of the scripture, but as the scripture gets written, as later generations read the rest, of the, God hates child sacrifice. What's going on here? Abraham doesn't understand, but it's remarkable for his faith. So Abraham rose early. I mean, just that alone. He doesn't delay. I've been talking in recent weeks. You don't need to know what God is up to. You seem to be faithful. You can say, I don't have a clue why you're doing what you're doing. Why have required what you've required? But he believes and he obeys. The author of Hebrews is even going to tell us that he had guessed a different path than what God was going to do. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place for which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. See, Abraham is confident both of them are coming back. Author of Hebrews suggests that Abraham thought perhaps God would raise his son from the dead. But Abraham says, we're both going to go. We're both going to come back. Abraham took the wood, the burnt offering, and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went on, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both went on together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this. And if not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So, three three points here. First, God... Asks, asks as we commands Abraham to sacrifice his unique son. Did it strike you as strange, your only son? Well, what about Ishmael? But in view of the promise, and in view of the promise of the coming seed, this is his only son. This is his only son of promise. God asks Abraham to sacrifice his unique son. In faith, Abraham and Isaac ascend Mount Moriah. Which, by the way, this is, this is remarkable. Listen, listen to Second Chronicles 3.1, the dedication of the building of the temple. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed. Now, Genesis tells us this is a mountain in or of Moriah. But I, I don't think it's unreasonable to understand that God here is, is bringing these things together. The temple is built on a mountain on Mount Moriah. Abram goes up on a mountain in Moriah. The temple is where the sacrificial system would be carried out, where the, the lambs every year would be slaughtered. I don't think it's too far of a stretch to assume Abraham is in or about the very spot this would happen, that we're meant to see the connection. In faith, Abraham and Isaac ascend the mount. And again, Hebrews 11 gives us some insight into what Abraham is thinking. Listen to Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham's got the dilemma. God said, through this child... Will your descendants be named? Kill this child. Abraham's conclusion, God doesn't lie. I guess he's going to have to raise him from the dead. And so, point three here. God provides the sacrifice. And Abraham names the place God will provide a lamb. Why, why do I see this as so significant? We'll add up the information we have here. God has promised to remedy the problem of sin and death and suffering in the world through sending a unique seed through the woman. He will crush the serpent's head. He will be wounded in his heel. 
He then makes promises to Abraham, developing this, to Abraham and to his seed are given this land. He makes a covenant through Abraham and his seed. All the nations and the families of the earth will be blessed. And then he calls on Abraham to give to the Lord his only son. Why? Why does he do that? I think, and I think the reason it pleased God was this. Abraham is willing to do what God himself would do for Abraham. Why is it that Abraham, Isaac, and you and I are not condemned to hell the moment we sinned, the moment we came into this world? Because God has provided the lamb, has he not? Abraham acts, without even knowing it, like the God he's worshiping, the God he's following. Turn to John chapter 1. Try to tie this all up. Turn to John chapter 1. John doesn't begin his gospel with the baby in the manger. Begins it with a rich prologue. But as Jesus first enters the scene, he gives him a striking title. We see the expectation of the Messiah as the Jews from Jerusalem send people to question John. Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? They're expecting someone's coming. Someone's coming. Are you him? Look at verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 35, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And I think Abraham understood more than I may have previously thought. Because in John 8, Jesus, if you were to continue reading that back and forth with the Jews where he tells them that their father, the devil, makes a remarkable statement in verse 56 of John 8. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What is Jesus saying? In what sense did Abraham rejoice to see Jesus' day? I I think it's got to be within the narrative we have. Walt Kaiser makes this statement, asking this question and trying to answer it. When could Abraham have seen the day of Christ? When could Abraham have seen anything on this order of sophistication? Probably when he took his son Isaac up on Mount Moriah to be offered. Even though he'd waited so long for him, and probably never get another to replace him, Abraham presumably believed God could raise the slain Isaac from the dead. For he distinctly told the men accompanying him to wait at the foot of the hill. For he and the boy would go worship, and they would both return. God instead provided the substitute, a ram caught in the thicket, which appeared as God called a halt to the test. That is why Abraham named the place Yahweh Jireh. The Lord will provide. In other words, Abraham saw that God himself would provide a substitute, someone in that coming seed who would somehow be connected with the sacrifice and deliverance of Isaac, the son of promise. So we've only moved through two people. Next week, we'll try to press this all the way through to David. But what we get already is this. A coming seed is coming who will defeat the serpent, crush his head, be wounded. It'll be tied in with the progeny of of Abraham, tied in with a land 
and universal blessing to all peoples. And lest Abraham think his son Isaac is the coming seed, he's asked to offer him up the very thing God will do with his own child, his own son and seed. And we get a picture of a substitute. We get a picture of sacrifice. And these things are all set in place so that hundreds of years later, John the Baptist, the one who came ahead, could point to Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God. That's why the incarnation is so wonderful. That is why Christmas, the birth of Christ, is so amazing. God kept his word. If he were just, he would require our deaths. But he sends his son. He doesn't withhold him. He doesn't keep him back. And because of that, he can die on our behalf. That's the meaning of the birth. This child is born to die. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So Jesus Christ is born and is to be seen as God's lamb come into this world. So that the justice and the judgment that rightly would fall on our heads will fall on another. God's solution to the problems of sin, death, and suffering is in Jesus Christ and in his birth. The seed of the woman. That's why the genealogies link them all the way back to Eve. And so in him, for those who look in faith to him, we see our substitute, our satisfaction in his birth. That God has kept his word. I'm going to close in prayer in a moment. We're going to sing a closing hymn, but before we sing a closing hymn, I'm going to call the worship team up, and we're going to sing a song about this reality for you, and then we'll invite you to join us in our closing carol. Let me pray. Lord God, um, it is remarkable how you set the stage and how you move the plot forward. You have taken the initiative. You have done for us what we could not do, on our behalf. You have determined to deal with our sin, to deal with judgment, to deal with the devil through the seed of the woman, through your own unique son. And even while Abraham did not live to see that day, he saw it from afar and rejoiced. We see it looking back with so much greater clarity. And so, Lord, let us not be distracted from the deep truths of Christmas, the deep truths of the Incarnation. Pray that we would see the Lamb of God sent to take away the sin of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.